A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Hey, folks, and welcome to Movie Crush. It's Chuck Bryant here, and I am in New York City, actually. So I'm not recording at our our lovely home base at Pond City Market in Atlanta, but I am on tour with Stuff You Should Know, doing shows at the Bell House in Brooklyn. And so while I was here, I thought, well, I should really try and take advantage of uh, the celebrity of New York and get someone in here in in our partner studio here at CDM Studios. And Mr. A.J. Jacobs acquiesced. He's a... He's a pal. He's an email pal and a lunch in New York pal. He reached out just a couple of years ago as a Stuff You Should Know listener and um, just a super nice guy. AJ is a, is a book author and um, boy, how should I describe his books? He's, he's one of those guys that kind of goes deep in his own life in order to write a book about what he's doing. So, for instance, his great book, The Year of Living Biblically, he he lived according to the Bible for a full year as strictly as possible, which included everything from like wearing white all the time to growing his beard out to ridiculous lengths, which I know his family sort of enjoyed. And he's just a great guy. So uh, hit AJ up in his favorite movie. Well, actually, his first pick was Groundhog Day, but that had been used by Griffin McElroy. So he had a solid backup plan with A Clockwork Orange, the watershed monumental Stanley Kubrick classic. And we had a really great conversation here in New York about A Clockwork Orange. It was pretty exciting for me. So here we go with A.J. Jacobs and A Clockwork Orange. Are you native New Yorker? I am. Okay, I thought so. Where'd you grow up? I grew up right here on the uh, on the Upper East Side, and there was a video store two blocks away. Oh, really? And uh, and it was a good one. It was not. It was like uh, 
they had a serious selection, and I went every day uh-huh. and watched a movie after school every day during really? high school. So Okay, starting in high school? Yeah. So I had, and the pretentious ones too, they had a lot of like, you know, yeah. foreign, they had like uh, the petite charm of the bourgeoisie or whatever it was uh-huh. called. So, so you got into good movies at a younger age, you feel like? Yeah, I'm not sure they were good, but uh, they were pretentious. <laughs> <laughs> Critically acclaimed <laughs> so, at least. Yeah, exactly. You're uh, about my age, right? I'm 49. Okay, a couple of years older, I'm 46. There you go. So we're, it's in the wheelhouse. It's in the, and that is one of the shocking things to me is watching these movies as an older guy uh-huh. and like uh, revisiting some of them. Yeah, yeah, and just how different it is. I mean, even like Ferris Bueller uh, or Fast Times. I watched Fast Times recently. I still love that movie. It is a great movie. Yeah. But I was watching, and I was <laughs> like, Mr. Hand is talking about the Cuban Revolution. Yeah, and I'm like. Tell me more. This sounds interesting. <laughs> and then Jeff Spicoli pizza comes in and I'm like, You just ruined Spicoli, the mojo. <laughs> yeah. What are you doing, you dick? That's so funny. Uh, and th- I had the same reaction. I watched Ferris Bueller with my kids and, uh, and Ben Stein was talking about like trickle down economics. Yeah. And I'm like, I want to hear it. First of all, Ben Stein is crazy. You know, he's a crazy conservative. Yeah. I want to hear his take on trickle down economics. And, uh, well, you know, the deal with that scene was that he, he, that was just him talking. Really? Yeah, because he wasn't an actor at the time. Um, and John Hughes, and the only reason I know this is because I was supposed to record yesterday with someone on Ferris Bueller, so I'd done my deep dive this week on that Interesting. movie. And um, John Hughes, I think, was a conservative, too, so they were friends. Really? Yeah, which was sort of sad for me to learn, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> I don't know what I expected, but, um, yeah. So, anyway, he uh, over or Ben Stein was talking to some crew members about that and he overheard it and he said that's that's exactly what you need to do in this scene that is funny it, and it wasn't some deadpan shtick it was just ben stein that is so i had no idea yeah uh well i do remember watching <clears throat> it with my and when i i was like the principal now or it was the vice principal yeah whatever jeffrey like, e. jones yeah yeah like he makes sense uh-huh. like i feel <laughs> i've become so I, I had the same reaction with Cat in the Hat. You know, the fish is the yeah. one who's like, what are you doing? Why? Like, you're you're letting this stranger into the house, uh-huh. and he's, like, causing <laughs> chaos, and you're not going to tell your parents? I'm like, the fish is right. So, yeah, I've become very old, I've decided. Yeah, when you're identifying movies. Mr. Hand, then you know you've crossed, crossed <laughs> to the, exactly. the other side. I, read, um, I reread Catcher in the Rye about every five or six years. Uh, since I was probably 20. Um, and it's just one of those books that I have done that on purpose because I had heard that, like, your perspective can switch on it over the years. And, and did you uh, Yeah, it? I mean, for sure. I mean, I don't know if it's switched so much. I mean, definitely when you're younger, you know, there's a little bit of the Holden Caulfield and many of us. Right. Like the phonies of the world. But sometimes that's reinforced as you get older. Right, uh, and, right. You know. I haven't read it in... Since I was holding Caulfield's age, yeah. I would like to check that out. Yeah, or maybe just wait for the big movie. Yeah, <laughs> do they ever make one? No, I don't think so. I think that's sort of a filmable movie, right? Yeah, I guess so. I don't know. They seem to film a lot. So, uh, <clears throat> watching videos. Were you also going out to the movie theaters? I guess here in New York. 
I was. Uh-huh. I was a little. Yeah, I remember. Uh, yeah, we would get high and go to the Pink Floyd's The Wall. That was a big memory. Nice. Very exciting. Midnight movie or just uh, no, just, just a regular show? Regular. I had a curfew, uh-huh. so I wasn't that much of a rebel. <laughs> uh, and also, I do remember seeing um, Richard Pryor's uh, stand-up at uh, at the Ziegfeld. That was that oh, wow. was amazing. I remember being blown away. Saw well, it live, or yeah. saw the movie? No, I just saw the movie. Oh, okay. I saw the movie live. Right. <laughs> so what that would have been? What was that? Sunset Strip, maybe live on the Sunset yeah, Strip. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Well, uh, he was something else. Yeah. So I, yeah, no, I listen. I love the movies, and uh, and I remember. When I was in college, I had a um, a poster of a Clockwork Orange on my wall. Really? And it was worse than that, though. It was in Italian. Like oh. I didn't see it in Italian. I don't speak Italian. Yeah, but you were a New York kid. But I went, yeah, <laughs> I went to some, like, village. That's pretty cool. So it was not cool. I think... Uh, no, if, that's super cool. Yeah? yeah? All right. I think so. I always feel if I met myself as a teenager, I'd be like, what a dick. Yeah, we were all little dicks, I think. All right. That makes <laughs> me feel better. <laughs> um, so, well, before we dive into Clockwork Orange, though, I do want to bring up Groundhog Day because mm. um, we went back and forth on email. And I felt bad because <clears throat> you had picked Groundhog Day originally. And just for the listeners out there, we had, uh, had Griffin McElroy in of My Brother, My Brother and Me, the podcast. Right. One of the three McElroy brothers. And he and I talked about that last week. Mm. And I told him that you had wanted it. And he kind of felt bad. But he said, but listen, man, he said, did he have a solid backup? And I said, oh, yeah, he had a pretty instant backup. He went, because I don't. <laughs> and he said, not only do I, not only is that my favorite movie, he said, of all time, but he said, I feel like it's the best movie of all time. Well, I listen. So he was I, hard in on that. But I do want good. to hear your thoughts. Well, on I that. appreciate his passion uh-huh. because uh, I, too, love that movie. <laughs> and I um, I actually just watched it a couple months ago and I was weeping. I was weeping oh, yeah. at the like the ending scene uh-huh. when he's like helping all the people. So I've become a total sap. Yeah. It's quite embarrassing. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I loved that movie and uh I saw the the musical with my kids. They took me uh-huh. for Father's Day. It's like a special Father's That's Day. That's right. Session. I forgot it was a musical. It was I really liked it. But I will say at intermission, you know, one of the themes is that the these people these small town people uh-huh. are like they're wonderful, they're better than the big city people. Yeah. And uh but in intermission I was like, wait a second, they're in Pennsylvania. Right. And, and I Googled it, and Puxatani went 78% for Trump. Oh, no. Yeah, that really hurt. Because <laughs> <laughs> then I spent the second half of like, did the mayor vote for Trump? Right. Like, did the, uh, the guys at the bar, who yeah. voted for Trump? Uh-huh. And I came up with, though, this made me feel better. Like, if we could do a, a sequel, uh-huh. like Election Day, yeah. where it's like November 9th, uh-huh. and he has to convince all the people not to vote for Trump or else he doesn't get to move on <laughs> to the next day. That was that made me feel better. But I did I do love that movie and um it's kind of a perfect little movie. It um, is. And rewatching it recently cuz I'd seen it quite a few times, but with this show I do, you know, sort of through the critical eye and take notes and really get in there. And it really it is a great Bill Murray comedy and if you just want to look at it that way, you've got plenty of that going on, but there's so much more happening in that film. 
and it could have been so cheesy and so spoon-fed. And uh, Griffin and I were talking about that usually in a movie like that, there's some wise mentor who shows them the way or just the main character will will figure it out and discover it. But he fails so many times, <laughs> he really doesn't get it until kind of like the last 10, 10 or 15 minutes of the movie. And he fails so spectacularly. Yeah. I love the different failures. Um, and, and, yeah, the other thing that was exciting is I didn't know this, but I'm acquaintances with this guy whose brother was the one who came up with the idea, Danny Rubin. Oh, really? Guy. And yeah, we talked so about him. on Facebook, uh, I made some comment. I think I commented about the stage show, and Danny Rubin – who is a friend of a friend, commented that no he, way. he said he thought I should do a book where I have to live the same day over and over again. And I'm like, well, this is a yeah. great moment in my life. That's so awesome. That the, uh, yeah. That's not a bad idea, but I don't know how you would do that Might without be hard. It being be hard. so, like, just sort of set up and canned. Right. Yeah. I would need an actual curse on mine. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that was the other cool part about that movie, too, I thought, is that it didn't um, – it was never explained. I love that. Yeah. It just happened. And the studio wanted it to. They, they yeah, wanted there was like a curse a, at first, I they think. They wanted a genie or whatever. Uh -huh. But uh, yeah, that was that was remarkable. And um, uh, yeah, it, I agree. It is a perfect little movie. And, and it also, it becomes more meaningful for me because I think, as I mentioned before, I've, I've become more and more sappy. Uh -huh. uh, you know, my teenage self would hate this guy, the guy I've become, he'd be like, and you hate your teenage self. Isn't yeah, that funny? We hate we hate each other so much. We have so much self loathing. Yeah, uh, but yeah, because I do feel like my my moral journey has uh -huh. similar. Like you know, I've uh, I was uh, I was an asshole, right. and now I'm slightly less of an asshole. I hopefully. have a hard time believing that. <laughs> the, the slightly less of an asshole? No, the, the first part. No, I you think know, uh, just a great dude. I can't imagine well, you being you're a very kind. A I'm not sure jerk. that's true. Uh, all right, so let's get into Clockwork Orange. I just finished it this morning. I watched about uh, three quarters of it last night after my show, and then. Picked it up at 6.30 a.m. That's tough to watch in the morning. <laughs> I'm impressed. Yeah, but, um, and this is one I've obviously seen quite a few times, but uh, it had been a while. Yeah, I, realized well, I when hadn't I was seen it, it in about 20 years. Is that right? 15, 20 years? And did I you will, watch it recently? Or? I did watch it oh, like okay. a week ago for the show. Oh, great. Thanks. Uh, of course. I will say this, that uh, I think as a movie fan, you'll be horrified, as uh, many of your listeners will be, but... If you download it on YouTube, yeah, which YouTube is what I read, you can watch it in double speed. Oh, really? Yeah. So I did watch it. Did you really? I know. Isn't that terrible? No. A little bit. We have people that listen to Stuff You Should Know on double speed. Well, I do that, yeah. Do you? I'm a double speeder. But yeah. Something we, we... about the movies people find particularly <laughs> offensive because it's supposed to be an emotional journey. Right. I mean, I have the emotions just more quickly. Uh-huh. And – uh I mean, it was also interesting because there's that scene with the the teenage girl. Yeah, the sped up sex scene. So yeah, that that was very hard lightning. to follow. <laughs> <laughs> that was lightning fast. So, um, 1971, obviously the the great Stanley Kubrick in uh, doing his Kubrick thing to the fullest. Oh yeah, uh, which is wonderful. And uh, Malcolm McDowell, Patrick McGee, uh, Adrian Corey. Just so many great small roles in that movie from uh, another one that just was killing me. And I found so much more of the comedy this time in it. 
uh, than I'd ever really noticed before. Right. The dark comedy. But the uh, the prison, the main prison guard oh, guy. Oh, he's wonderful. Oh, yeah. just fantastic. And, and you know what I didn't know? I I just looked up, like, you know, weird fun facts about A Clockwork Orange. Darth Vader. Did you see that? Yeah, that was him, right? The bodyguard guy? Yeah. The manservant? Know. Yeah. Uh, the manservant uh-huh. who was uh, with the very tight shorts yes. was uh, was Darth <laughs> Vader, which I did not know. So that's a nice little Easter egg. Well, one of uh, well, first of all, I should mention I uh, when I lived in New York, like or New Jersey, twenty years ago, and we would come into New York all the time. My friends and I did for Halloween one year mm. dress up as the Droogs. Uh, How did it go? How was your uh, cod piece? Uh, it was pretty solid. You know, I mean, <laughs> what do you use for a cod? Do you have I just to used a regular, just athletic jock strap. Gotcha. So it wasn't as authentic as like the real, you know, the one in the movie. Right. But we did okay. And, um, you know, put on the eyelash on one eye and had the hat and the cane. And it was, it was weirdly, uh, you kind of like, you know, we had a few drinks and we're walking around the city and, you kind of fall into that. Obviously, we didn't do anything nefarious, but right, we were kind of like puffing our chest out a bit. You that know, that is interesting. Well, I find that always like the way you dress really does. Because uh-huh. I did a book on living by the rules of the Bible. Yeah, yeah. And one of them was you can only wear white clothes. So I was wearing white all the time, and uh-huh. it really did affect my mind. Wow. I was like, you know, I was feeling much more. I was like, oh, you know, I'm so spiritual. I'm wearing white. Yeah. Uh, you know, either that or I'm like going to play Wimbledon or go to P. Diddy's <laughs> party. But it definitely affects the outer, affects the inner. Yeah. So I would not want my kids to dress up as uh, as Alex. Yeah. yeah. Uh, how was, how's the show going? Which one? The, the uh, Living Bill. Oh, the, uh, it's your got, show. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You've got several shows. Uh, it's good. I just went out there to uh, see a taping on I saw last weekend. Was that yeah. fun? It was. I mean, very bizarre. Yeah. And, I um, and I have no control over it, so that's a little bit terrifying. Yeah, you, but, but uh, you just sort of signed it away. I and, signed uh, it away. Said, go with go with God. I said, <laughs> go with God. Literally. Unless Moon Vis. Uh huh. Uh, that's right. I. I see it as like I gave them, here's a potato, and then yeah. they can make french fries or hash brown. Who knows what they're going to make. But um, but it was fun. And I love the guy who's playing the character loosely based on me. He's very loosely Jay based Ferguson? on Jay Ferguson? Yeah. Yeah, he's terrific. He's great. He was in Mad Men. Yeah. And he had a huge beard in Mad Men. And uh-huh. that's why I thought they cast him because right. uh, I had a beard in the book. But um, but they're actually not letting him grow the beard until season two. Oh, I think okay. So that'll afraid. be the season two arc? Yeah. <laughs> That's the, uh, well, that's um, nice to hear there's a season two in the works already. That's great. Oh, no, I don't know if that's true. But uh, oh, they're saying if there up? was a season two. <laughs> <laughs> I got you. Um, so, first of all, the movie Clockwork Orange opens um, with just that red screen and that, uh, you know, most of the, the the score is the symphonic classical music of Beethoven. But there's also that Kubrickian oh, yeah. Moog synthesizer. It's unbelievable. That is just so loud and powerful right from the beginning. And it's funny. When I heard that for the first time in 15 years, it brought back. It was like oh, my, yeah. my Madeline. It uh-huh. was like, wow, wow. Yeah. I was like, oh, man, that puts me in. And just uh, so Kubrickian, you know, now that, it, you know, when I saw it when I was in college, it was one of my first Kubrick movies probably I'd seen. But now that I've seen like most of the body of his work, what else? Ha- where, where else does he have that move synthesizer? Well, I don't know if just that synthesizer, but just that sort of in-your-face uh, loud music. I think mm. has sort of been a hallmark of his for sure. Right. Or maybe I'm just thinking of this. 
<laughs> <laughs> well, I do. You know, you have the Thus Spake Zarathustra or whatever it's called from yeah. 2001. Yeah. That's pretty memorable. And this was, I think, just after that, if I'm not mistaken? Yeah, yeah. I think so. I only know that because I read some article there. Uh, Malcolm McDowell didn't know who Kubrick was. And oh, someone's wow. like this. He did 2001. Yeah. Which actually I watched about 10 years ago and that did not hold up as well. Really? Me. I found it a little slow. I should have watched it in double speed. It I is a little went. slow. Double speed might be just right yeah. for that one, <laughs> which is probably heresy, you know, for most people. I know. But uh, yeah, 2001 is, a, is drags a bit. I do, but I do think the, um, uh, Dr. Strangelove, that definitely holds yeah. up for me. Yeah, I watch that every few years still. Yeah, that's a it's delight. One of my favorites. Well, and that's what made me kind of, I think I saw Strangelove even after, I was all out of order with Kubrick, uh, just as I discovered his movies over the years. So I saw Strangelove after Clockwork Orange, and so I didn't pick up on any of the dark comedy in Clockwork ah. Orange. And then when I saw Strangelove, I sort of got his sense of humor a bit more. Right, right. And watching it last night and today, I was like, there were definitely a lot of times where I was like, this is, there's a lot of funny stuff going on. A lot it of is. horrifying stuff, too. Right. But he really just kind of walked that line. horrifyingly funny. And I will say, I remember my other strong memory of uh, well, of Kubrick was I got Barry Lyndon from that same uh-huh. video store. And I remember... It, it also was a little slow, I found, but then the ending, they had this Chiron on the screen mm-hmm. that I still think about all the time. And I'm, I'm, I don't remember the exact words, but it was basically, these events <clears throat> took place in the reign of King George III, and uh, all the players, whether they were rich or poor or uh-huh. uh, good or bad, they're all equal now. I was like, oh, man. Wow. <laughs> so it was, but so I didn't put a bow on that, didn't yeah. you? <laughs> <laughs> it's like everybody died. Yeah. It's pretty much the ending to any movie you could do, pretty much a Chiron, and then everyone died. Uh, but I do think about that a lot. You know, it's, yeah. it was a very good, it was a memento mori. Uh, uh-huh. You know, we uh, we were all going to die. Wow. And last, Aubrey de Grey is right, and we can live forever. So right. He could it's be. either one of those two. <laughs> A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. 
And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're talking tea, we're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Here are some examples of what you'll hear from us on Rappaport's reality podcast. This is where we discuss all things reality TV, all things popular culture. And a little bit of... Rappaport's reality, the reality of bit. us. We're a figuring bit. out. And if we had been recording these last four or five days, Ooh. it, it would have been, been juicy. would have taken a, a, a left turn. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Well, Kubrick definitely takes his time in all his movies, um, which I appreciate for sure, especially these days when I feel like the movies seem to be long, but they're not taking their time. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's just scene after scene. I will say, though, I was immediately hooked by A Clockwork Orange. I mean, that starts out strong. Him staring at you, Uh the great voiceover, and that bar is quite startling. Yeah, yeah, the milk bar and just that long dolly back revealing everything. And also just the milk coming from the woman's breast. And, you know, the idea of milk, the most innocent I think that's one thing he does very well was, you know, taking these very innocent things and making them mm-hmm. really malevolent, like milk as a drug or singing in the rain. Yeah. I mean, he is good at ruining yeah. uh, innocent stuff. Yeah. Well, and even Alex as a whole, like part of the complexity of that character is uh, that he is he's just like the nice boy next door. By all outward appearances, the way he converses with everyone and interacts. Right. It's usually very respectful. Uh, He doesn't, you know, that's part of the sinister thing is buried underneath, which makes it frightening. But he didn't make him just like a a hooligan or a thug. No. And the way he talks, it's so lovely and flower like. uh, Yeah. Even when he insults people, he's like, you eunuch jelly thou. Uh That just made me laugh. (laughs) The way he talks, uh, yeah. clear as an azure sky in deepest summer. Yeah. Something like that. So good. Um, so the other thing that struck me was um, the the just utter lack of backstory. Like the movie mm. just starts in that milk bar and it just shows the droogs doing their thing. And there's no sense of, and I guess that was part of the point. There's no sense of why he was like this to begin with. Right. And he, he was a, a true sociopath. 
the other guys were clearly sort of along for the ride. Right. But he was the one that was genuinely a sociopath, I think. Well, what fascinated me is reading about it. I did not know about this final chapter that Anthony Burgess wrote that was cut out of the American version. Oh, what is that? In the final chapter, uh, <clears throat> Alex grows up. He basically, he, you know, he, he gets the Ludovico treatment uh-huh. out of his system and right. he goes back to raping and pillaging and then he gets bored and he's like, you know what? This is not. And then he sees one of his friends, I don't know, maybe one of the Drugs uh-huh. was, uh, with, had a family and he's like, you know what? Maybe that would be better. And really? he becomes like this bourgeois, like nice, uh-huh. like, uh, middle class working guy. And I think so that was Anthony Burgess's ending and he was very nervous about the Kubrick version where where Alex just continues to be this horrible sociopath. Right. So I thought that was fascinating. I did not and I would actually that would be an interesting sequel. Just Alex as uh-huh. like a middle class guy going yeah. around his business like like incredibly dull movie. Right. Uh, <laughs> but um but that was I think that when I read that it that definitely changed it for me because uh-huh. that appeals to the old me, the new the me now. Right. Like, oh, okay, he finally like he got some morality. Whereas the version where he stays the sociopath appealed to my teenage self. He's like, yeah, right. Fine, you know this the system. The system's terrible. Right. I'm gonna. I'm glad that he's back to being horrible. Well, it's interesting that you say that because now that I know that that chapter exists. Maybe he is not a sociopath. Was he just a bored, disaffected youth? Yeah, it's a good you question. Know? I mean, he certainly does seem like a sociopath. I mean, the joy that he seems to derive yeah. from ultra-violence. Because uh-huh. it's not just he's doing it to get something. Like, yeah. he actually enjoys the violence. Yeah. But maybe you outgrow it. I mean, I think that that is a nice thought. I don't know if it's true uh-huh. that people change. I hope it's true. I think I've changed. I've become, as I say, I do think I'm less of an asshole. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, I hope that that's true. Well, I really, I really like the part, um, sort of early on in that first act when the, um, the other fellows try to challenge his power. Oh, yeah. And it, uh, obviously none of that works out and he reestablishes himself in sort of a comically brutal way when you look at the scene now. Although it was in slow motion, you saw it at double speed. <laughs> The, the walking by the riverbank, but uh, that's when I w- that's when I really solidified. I was like, no, this guy's really crazy, and right. his friends just they're just they're the bored ones, right, right, right. They're just following along, basically. Especially Dim. I mean, he's obviously yeah, he's, he's challenged. Not so but uh, yeah, well, it is. I have to say, slow motion violence. I guess that was must have been an early an early version of it. Like now, I guess it's probably cliched, but. But then, it might, I mean, it, it did look lovely. Yeah. Uh, like the way he splashes into the river uh-huh. after he's hit. Uh, uh, there is something. I do. I am a sucker for slow motion violence with classical music in the background. I yeah, think. It really does go together, doesn't it? <laughs> 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 kind of movie then. Yeah. Uh, the prison check-in scene is one of my favorite scenes when... And that's just a perfect example of Kubrick just taking his time. Like, that could have been a throwaway scene or it could have been eight seconds long. Right. And he just lets it go on and on. And I just, like, I started, found myself laughing out loud. And Uh, what he was, it was the guard was saying, 
all of his personal effects. Uh-huh. Well, like, yeah, he's like, yeah. yeah, you have a comb, and uh, yeah, that was funny. One piece of chocolate. <laughs> yeah, and you know, he makes a stand behind the line. It just goes on and on and on. But I always get the sense that Kubrick just. I mean, I guess some people have called him self-indulgent, but I don't really see it that way. I think he's definitely kind of fucking with people. Right. Um, for his own amusement sometimes. And maybe that is total self-indulgence. Maybe he's got a little Alex in him. He's like a little sadistic. He's like, you're going to watch this. And like the Ludovico technique, the Uh fact that he like made us watch that for so long. Yeah, yeah. That was not a quick thing either. Yeah, that's interesting. I wonder. I mean, I I will say that watching... um, Eyes wide shut. I felt like he was Love torturing me. <laughs> you didn't like it? I did not like it. Very I divisive seen it. movie. I haven't seen it since it came out. So no, I'm... I get it, man. Very divisive movie. Um, a lot of people hate that fucking movie. What do you like about it? I'm interested. I think I was just so in on Kubrick that um, I'm just I'm just all in. So I love again. I love the pace. I love how slow it was and how it revealed itself. Um, yeah, man, I just loved it. And and hearing the backstory behind it, I think it was sort of... Uh, oh, I don't know the backstory. Well, just how long it yeah, took. It was like, just right. years and years. And, and put the that couple, the real-life couple at the time, with Cruz and Kidman through hell to, to do 70, 80, 100 takes. <laughs> and it's just, it's the madness of it uh, is just striking to me that of that man true. as a filmmaker. And this was the quickest movie he's ever made. Apparently. This one, A Clockwork Orange? Yeah, I think... Yeah. It, it took a year to to get into theaters, which for Kubrick was just right, that's like lightning a fast. rapid pace. That's funny. Well, no, Eyes Wide Shut, it ruined orgies for me forever. <laughs> <laughs> I am never going to go to an orgy. No more? It just looks so boring. Yeah. And the masks, so silly. It was very silly, uh, but I was all in. And it was good. just such a beautiful looking movie, too. It did, uh, yes, it did like look Like his beautiful. aesthetic has just always blown me away. It also, I mean, I still do. This is in retrospect that I have issues with Tom Cruise. Uh, uh, sure, but uh, because of the you know the whole like, Scientology. Yeah, <laughs> Matt, it's, it's hard like, to separate the art from the artist in that case. Ah, uh, it is. Uh, yeah, I think about that a lot more and more. Like, uh-huh. how do you separate the art from the artist? I know because it's tough. It is. Uh, this was shocking to me. I I did some research and I read that the book which I had read. Back in high school, uh-huh. but I had forgotten. In the book, Alex is even worse than he is in the movie. Oh, really? He, he do you remember the scene with the two girls? They go to the um, the music store, and then he brings uh-huh. them home. Those, the fast forward sex scene. Yeah. In the book, they were ten years old. Oh my god! I know it's unbelievable. Seriously? Yeah. And in well, the movie, he's they younger. Were like, obviously, ten is is. A crime no matter what. Right. But I think in the movie he's 17 and the book he's more like 15. Oh, really? But um, still, that's horrifying. It was horrifying. And he doesn't seem 17 in the movie either. I know he was older when he played him, but I don't, in fact, until I researched it, I didn't know that he was supposed to be that young. Yeah, I always thought saw him as like 20, 21. Yeah, same here. That's interesting. Uh, yeah, it was. Uh, but there's was, a part about him not going to school. That's true. Uh, that I never just sort of picked up on. Yeah. Because it just seems Maybe like they're always college. roaming around. It's no, like getting his PhD. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever they call high school in England. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. 
Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for the eligible bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're talking tea, we're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Here are some examples of what you'll hear from us on Rappaport's Reality Podcast. This is where we discuss all things reality TV, all things popular culture. And a little bit of... Rappaport's reality, the reality of bit. us. We're a figuring bit. out. And if we had been recording these last four or five days, Ooh. it, it would have been, Ooh, a, been the juicy. podcast would have taken a, a, a left turn. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Uh, so... Obviously, the movie was maligned by many critics and the the Catholic Church for sure, um, and it's it's certainly horrifying all the violence and the sex at a time when I think you know putting those two things together on screen was uh, was a maverick move for sure. Right. But uh, <laughs> Kubrick just I forgot about the part where he full on goes Roman soldier torturing Christ in that one scene. Oh, in the, 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 the Ludovico treatment? Yeah, he has the fantasy 
and it shows Jesus oh, right. Jesus being whipped, and, and then it pans it you know pulls back and reveals that he's the Roman soldier. That and, was very yeah. So I was like, very, well, of course the Catholic Church like you can't show that. And then the other thing was when he was fantasizing, he's reading the Bible and he's loving the parts yeah. which are about like the sex and uh-huh. the you know <laughs> ha- eating the grapes and having the orgies, which was funny to me because I I spent. A year and a half really studying the Bible. Right. And there's all the, especially the Old Testament. I uh-huh. mean, there is some serious craziness and perversion. Yeah. Uh, so I can see how someone <laughs> from his mindset. Yeah. I mean, there are scenes like where lots of ha- escapes, uh, you know, Lot's wife is turned into a pillar of salt. Uh-huh. He escapes with his daughters. His daughters think they're the last people on earth and get him drunk and sleep with him. Right. So, and I was like, my God, I don't want my kids reading this. So, yeah. uh, but yeah, that was, um, that was remarkable. It's no, it is no wonder. I mean, I, it made me think a lot about the, the deeper moral messages, uh, and this idea, because I am very torn, uh, and I, I don't think, I don't expect you or anyone to agree with me. Okay. But I, I don't really believe in free will. I think, you know, we are basically meat robots. Uh-huh. Uh, we feel compassion. I'm all for that. But uh, to me, like, I'm torn on the Ludovico technique. Like, if you could do this Pavlov technique mm-hmm. and, can, and reform criminals, would that be okay? And part of me is like, you know what? Having him, depriving him of the... So-called choice, the delusion of choice not to uh, rape someone, that doesn't bother me that much, uh-huh. you know? Like, if I could have a society where really horrible sociopaths did feel physically ill uh-huh. if they were about to rape someone, I may be okay with that. I think a lot of people would agree with you. Yeah? Yeah. What about this one? I don't know. This one I think I'm out on uh, in a very small minority. The Minority Report. The movie? Yeah. Uh-huh. Like from a oh, utilitarian like point. Precogs? Yeah, having three people uh-huh. have a pretty terrible life to make the rest of the world happy and safe. Like, right. Is it worth – like if the precogs were truly good people, they'd be like, you know what? I'm going to do it. Uh-huh. I, I hate it. It's horrible. <laughs> yeah. But I'm going to do it to save other people. Right. So Well, that's the trolley problem, right? Yeah, exactly. It uh-huh. is the trolley problem. And I am one of the uh, I am one of the people who would pull the lever. Yeah. And uh, I know I'm in the I think it's 10% of people uh-huh, who pull the so. lever. Yeah. And I am one of those. And it was very disturbing. I was just looking it up. Uh I saw a study recently that people who would pull the lever mm-hmm. have a high degree of like sociopathy and yeah yeah they're horrible people but i i hope i'm not horrible but i still would pull the lever no i don't think that makes you horrible at all it just makes you one of the 10 (laughs) percent the the freakish 10 percent well with alex though kubrick especially in that third act he really just goes total sort of mind fuck on the audience to where he is eliciting sympathy now Oh, yeah. Because this monster is now a, a, a pawn of the government and a lab rat, essentially. Right. And um, he's clearly making a statement there. Oh, yeah. And the way that he portrayed the the liberal guy, you know, the guy um, 
who takes him in, who right. is the victim of the initial yeah, yeah. crime, uh, he portrays him as a psycho as well. So uh-huh. no one comes off very well right. on either side. Uh, uh, yeah, it was um, – and what's interesting, I did – I think as a teenager, I definitely – I like that part because I could like uh, empathize with the rebel Alex, like right. poor Alex being screwed by society. Now the character I empathize with most is the uh, old homeless guy who gets beat up. Right, like like. But he yeah. gets his revenge too. Yeah, I know. It's like I was rooting for him when he was beating up Alex. Yeah, I'm all like, the old people like attack him. Yeah, in the end. I'm like good for old people. Yeah, yeah. It is funny. That is, it is a very like yeah anti old people. It is, uh, yeah. Old uh-huh. people are terrible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I don't. I'm not even sure what Kubrick's. Uh, and I don't know. That he probably wanted it that way to not have a very sort of clear cut black and white statement on this stuff. Right. I think he wanted to leave it very murky um, and leave people s- scratching their heads and contemplating this when they yeah, left yeah. the theater. You know, and it worked. I mean, I'm sure he was slightly on the side of freedom of choice uh-huh, and, sure. uh, you know, that this is an authoritarian way to engineer people to, like, right. make them feel sick. Um, but he did a very good job of showing yeah. both sides and making fun of the the, the liberal side. Where, yeah. I mean, that scene where they're feeding Alex dinner and, uh, you know, it's the reformers feeding Alex oh, dinner. Yeah. And he's like, more wine? Yeah. That made me laugh very hard <laughs> watching it this time. Yeah. Oh, man, Malcolm McDowell is so good in this movie. He is. And like the innocence he has in that scene where he's mm-hmm. like, hmm. Yeah. <laughs> he's, oh, and you know what else it makes me laugh? That Malcolm, like the joy, the innocent joy he gets at the end where they're showing him the cartoons uh-huh. and he has to come up. Uh, yeah, yeah. With, and just the laughter he gets from like, oh, no, no time for the check the meter, just time for the in out, in out, yeah. whatever it was. Uh-huh. Like, and his laughter in that is, uh, he's a remarkable actor. Yeah. And it just shows like he is sort of a kid in this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way his parents treat him, you know, his, his mo- weird mom with the purple hair. There, It's almost like that, uh, it's almost like his parents were drugged. And it was all just, uh, I don't know, it just killed me to see that his family had no idea what he was doing. And he was laying in bed and she was trying to get him to go to school. And he's like, no, Ma, just, you know, just need to get myself right. And that, uh, you know, she leaves him alone. Well, it terrified me, yeah, because, I mean, I was not a particularly bad kid, but I remember I definitely snuck out. My, I had my curfew at midnight. I would come in, say goodnight to my parents, uh-huh. and then I would... Go out. I would take the elevate. I would go down the stairs to the one floor below and take oh. the elevator there because I was worried the sound of the elevator would wake my parents up. Oh, nice. So, yeah, I am. My kids are getting to be teenagers now, and I'm just terrified of what uh-huh. they are going to do that I don't know about. Yeah. I guess it's good now that, like, you can basically, it is a, uh, this dystopian future where you can track everyone uh-huh. all the time. Right. So I suppose I'll have I can probably figure out where they are uh-huh. at any time, <laughs> which is good and bad. Uh, so there's a few bits of trivia here. Let me see if these are interesting. Oh, here's one I thought was very Kubrickian. He and you may know some of these, but he apparently had his assistant 
destroy all the footage that he didn't use. Really? Yeah. I had no idea. Yeah. That's too bad. It just seems like a very Stanley Kubrick thing. Cause and I'm sure they were a like, control freak. there were 80 takes of each yeah, one. Yeah, exactly. So, like, basically no one's ever going to change this movie or use any of this for anything. Well, the, another thing I read that I didn't know is that he got, Kubrick got death threats in England. Oh, really? After the movie came out and saying that they were going to do a home invasion of Kubrick. Oh. And he refused to let it be shown in England after that until after he died. So really? it was never screened in England. Wow. Well, I think really that was certainly, it was on the internet. Uh-huh. <laughs> but, so it has to be true. <laughs> uh, he also was so worried that, um, that theater owners themselves would cut parts of it out. Oh, really? That he apparently had, um, had new prints shipped every week and swapped them out for the current print. Wow. Which is that's amazing. Yeah, that's a level of control <laughs> that uh even <laughs> is shocking to me. Uh here's one. Gene Kelly met uh, Malcolm McDowell years later at a party and walked away in disgust. Really? Yeah. And he was not happy about the singing in the rain bit. Oh, Gene. Oh, yeah. I thought I was thinking in my mind, Gene Hackman. I'm no. like, why did no, Gene no. Hackman <laughs> dislike him so much? Oh, Gene Kelly. Yeah. Well, it's shocking to me that they got the rights to that. How do they get the rights to that? Uh, or are they allowed to use? Well, it for- the the story I read was that he um he had he said, you know, can you do a little dance or something? And the only song that Malcolm McDowell could remember was "Singing in the Rain," and so Kubrick loved it, and it said, "Quickly secure the rights for ten thousand dollars the next day." Uh, and clearly Gene Kelly didn't have he didn't anything either. to do with it. Right, right, right. Or, or it wasn't clearly, you know, stated like how it was going to be used. <laughs> One or the other. But they got the rights and Gene Kelly was not I did get to meet Malcolm McDowell. Uh, oh, wow. When I was, I was a reporter at Entertainment Weekly. Uh-huh. And, uh, they were doing a reboot of Fantasy Island. And he was Mr. Rourke. He'd be kind of perfect at that role. He was a great Mr. Rourke. The show did not, actually, I liked the show. It was Barry Sonnenfeld was a director, I think. Really? Yeah. Wow. Uh, that's a good so. pedigree. I did interview and I did like do my fawning, like I love Clockwork Orange. Sure. He was very polite. Like, yeah, he didn't scoff or anything. He, you know, he was like, "Thank you." <laughs> well, he didn't. Um, I think that he and Kubrick didn't speak for quite a while after, and that really disappointed him. And I think Kubrick has a track record of not staying friends. Like he and Peter Sellers didn't speak again, really, uh, during their lifetime. I think. Um, but he was. He Malcolm just cuts McD- them off. I think so. I don't know if it's a rule or it's just happened a lot. But, um, you know, he was always accused of sort of treating the talent like cattle. Right. And not really caring uh, or seemingly caring much for the actors and their well-being and the, their welfare <laughs> uh, by grinding them through these processes. Right. Um, but uh, Malcolm McDowell was friends with uh, Mrs. Kubrick and they kept in touch and – uh, I think it said years uh, later after his passing, he he went with her to his grave and like really kind of broke down. It's pretty interesting. That's nice. Because he was young, you know, when they made it. I mean, I know he wasn't 17, but right. I think he was 22 or 23. That is it. And that was his first big, big thing. Right. Uh, he had been in other movies. He but, had been in If, which I remember right. seeing as well. Well, it's interesting. I mean, that brings up the whole issue to me of like, is it okay for a director to be cruel and sadistic if it gets this amazing performance out of them. Like, I know. What are the ethics of that? I know. Because there's like Hitchcock, that guy was a terrible yeah. human being I to know. his actors and actresses. And uh, That's yeah, a tricky one. It is a tricky one. Yeah. 
I remember reading when I, I took a film class at senior year in high school, and I remember reading about um, Public Enemy, the original with Jimmy Cagney, uh-huh. and how they there's a famous scene where he takes a grapefruit at breakfast and then and just shoves it in the his girlfriend's face uh-huh. and mashes it, and uh, and they didn't tell her that this was going to happen because uh, yeah. they wanted to see the real the reaction. reaction. So uh, yeah, I would say That's probably not. <laughs> Probably not a good idea, but it is interesting because you do get a, a different uh, you get a different reaction. I'm sure a much more oh, real yeah, reaction. Sure. Uh, all right. So we wrap up here on Movie Crush with a couple of uh, quick segments. Uh, one is called "What Ebert Said." This movie is a complete disappointment. How do you like it? He didn't. Interesting. And this is one of those. And he's done a few movies where he had gone back. Later and said, hey, I, I admit I was wrong. Right. I didn't get it. It's clearly a classic. But he stuck to his guns on this one. Um, did not like it. He gave it two stars. And he says this. And this, I think, kind of summarizes a lot of critics' issues with it in general. Because I read a bunch of reviews. Uh, Stanley Kubrick's Clockwork Orange is an uh, ideological mess. A paranoid right-wing fantasy masquerading as an Orwellian warning. It pretends to oppose the police state and force mind control, but all it really does is celebrate the nastiness of its hero, Alex. Alex is violent because it is necessary for him to be violent in order for this movie to entertain in the way Kubrick intends. He has been made into a sadistic rapist, not by society, not by his parents, not by the police state or the centralization, and not by creeping fascism, but by the producer, director, and writer of this film. <laughs> I and think then, it's a real ad hominem attack. I know. He goes on to explain that he does know it is a book uh, that right. it was based on, but um, he really lays it all at the feet of Stanley Kubrick. That is it. Well, it is, you know, the whole idea of like glorification of violence, even when you're pretending to be uh, making a statement making about a statement. it. Yeah. And just in general, like Oliver Stone's Wall Street, I'm sure, inspired thousands of kids to go into Wall Street and yeah. be like, greed is good. So yep. even if you do have the intention, which I, I think Kubrick hopefully had. Yeah, and Stone, that. of course. Yeah. Uh, and then finally, we finish with five questions. Mm. Um, and these can be as succinct as you want or or you can elaborate. Uh, the first movie you remember seeing in a theater. I remember seeing it was a ch- some Charlie Brown movie, and I was terrified. We had to, my parents had to take me out because it was like they were too big. Uh-huh. I was like, "What are these giants moving around <laughs> on the screen?" Yeah. So I've, I've since I, I can now see movies in uh-huh. the theater. I'm That's not great. too scared. <laughs> uh, do you remember the first R-rated movie you ever saw? I do. It was Blazing Saddles. It oh. was for my friends. I he must have been. We must have been like eleven. I don't know. And his babysitter took us all to uh-huh. for a birthday to a double feature of Bananas and Blazing Saddles. And my my mother was horrified. She was like, well, yeah. they took you to an R-rated movie. That is uh, <laughs> absolutely inappropriate. Speaking of movies that could never be made today. Oh, yeah. Certainly Blazing Saddles. Right. Absolutely. It's funny because I saw that. Um, I don't count that as my first R-rated movie um, because – I was too young to really get it, but I did go to the drive-in for a double feature, and Blazing Saddles was one of those movies. But I was five or six, and um, I just remember the the horse punching scene 
That's literally the only thing that stands out in my mind as a child. And did you, were you horrified or you liked it? No, I think I was asleep in the seat and woke up and like saw that part and then went back to sleep. <laughs> so I don't, I don't count it as my first already. I mean, movies. the fart scene appealed. Oh, sure. Yeah. For a kid that age. Right. <laughs> well, and my age too. Let's be honest. <laughs> uh, will you walk out of a bad movie? And do you remember doing that? I, ha- I have done. My wife refuses to. She's like, once you pay, you're out. in, uh-huh. which I think is, you know, I think it's a logical fallacy. It's like the uh, sunken yeah. cost. I think there's an even name for it. Uh-huh. But uh, I, I will, I will walk out. I'm trying to think what was the last one. I mean, I very rarely see movies in the theater anymore. Right. So I think a lot of us are in that boat. It's much easier to pause. And a lot of times you'll pause and you're like, I'll get back to that tomorrow. And, and then, that doesn't happen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's sort of the modern equivalent of walking oh, Yeah, out. exactly. Um, do you have a guilty pleasure that, that you kind of go back to? Mm, that's that you a can good think question. Of? Uh well, is watching Woody Allen's and feeling movies and feeling guilty? Does that count? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> I do love. Usually, Annie a guilty Hall. pleasure is like a not so great movie. Right? But yeah, I know what you mean. Uh, it's tough with Woody these days. I'm. Well, this is not. A, I mean, I. I could have chosen for this. It was between Groundhog's Day, A Clockwork Orange, and an Albert Brooks movie. I mean, I uh, just any of them. Any real life, yeah. was one of the greatest movies Modern of all romance. time. Modern romance, modern romance. So let me think. What are some other guilty pleasures? Well, you know what? I feel I feel very guilty about this. They did. I used to work at Entertainment Weekly, uh-huh. and they were doing a guilty pleasures issue. Oh wow! And. Uh, so everyone had to pitch, and I pitched the Ernest movies, like Ernest uh-huh. Goes to Jail. <laughs> yeah, Even that would qualify. Though, well, but here's the thing. I, I had never actually seen one. I just thought the idea was funny. Uh-huh. So I pitched it, and they're like, yeah, I wish I got it. So then I had to watch oh, the Ernest no. Goes to Jail movies. I'm like, these are, these are terrible. They're not even pleasures. <laughs> they're not even so bad they're good. Yeah. They're just so bad they're bad. I never saw any of those. Um, so if anyone reads that essay I wrote about Ernest, I, I apologize. <laughs> that is a uh, misrepresentation. That is terrible journalism. Uh, and finally, question five, uh, we end with Movie Going 101. I know it's you don't get to the theater much anymore, but um, what did, what are your movie rituals when you were going to the movies? Were there certain theaters or a certain seat or concessions well, that you would always get? I'm always I, – I do the uh, the aisle seat. It's interesting because when, when, when my wife and I would go, when we first started dating, I remember like holding hands during um, Shakespeare in Love was uh-huh. like one of the great moments of my life. Oh, like, that's it sweet. Was one of the first times I held her hand. Now she likes to have a seat in between us. <laughs> <laughs> so that's sort Very of the, symbolic. the evolution of our marriage. Yeah, man. That's She's how like, it works. I don't need to sit next to you. <laughs> I don't want to talk to you during yep. – and if you check your iPhone, that's going to drive me crazy. So uh-huh. she'll call the usher out on yeah. you, on her own husband. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so yeah, I guess that's my ritual: is sitting a seat away from my wife. Uh-huh. Uh huh. But I do, you know, I do love the movies. Yeah. I gotta say, and it's interesting to see how long this this will last as a. You know, how is it? Because it has lasted mm-hmm. a long time. The I, the idea of like an hour and a half, two hour yeah. movie where you just sit there and watch. But, like, you know, are my grandkids going to be like, well, right. what were you thinking? Like, you didn't get to shoot anyone. Right. You, you weren't in the scene. Uh-huh. You weren't like interacting with the actors. You were yeah. just watching. 
Uh, Very interesting. And also, you know what I feel? I feel lucky that we were in the the era of the um, movie sets where they have these mm-hmm. enormous. Because I imagine in like fifty years, CGI will be so good. It's all recreated. Yeah. Like, yeah. why would you spend a million dollars to recreate New York when you can have this amazing, you know, New yeah. York perfectly? So I love the fact that we still live in the era of these crazy sets that yeah. are made up. Good stuff, man. I loved it. Thank you. I could talk all day about this. All right. Thanks a lot, bud. <laughs> Thanks, Chuck. All right. So another one in the can uh, here in New York City. That was A.J. Jacobs. Uh, really great guy. And it was, it was kind of fun to talk to a native New Yorker about his experience growing up in the city and uh, and kind of how he spent his time and his movie watching time. Yeah, very, very good guy, and really loved hearing his insight, not only on A Clockwork Orange, but uh, his what he had to say about Groundhog Day, which is pretty cool. Um, so thanks to AJ. If you want to read his books, uh, there are many worse ways to spend your time, let me tell you. Uh, check out The Year of Living Biblically is one. The Know-It-All is another great book. Drop Dead Healthy is another book. The Guinea Pig Diaries, they are all really terrific, and his brand-new book, uh, with Simon and Schuster called It's All Relative Adventures Up and Down the World's Family Tree. This one is excellent. He sent me an advanced copy and I've already read it and it's really, really wonderful. It's, it sort of just tackles the notion, uh, that we are all related in this world. And, um, he does a deep dive on that and it's really terrific. So thanks to AJ. Thanks to you all. And we will see you next week on Movie Crush. And until next time, I am going to be cleaning some disgusting stuff off the bottom of my shoe. Movie theaters are gross. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast.